the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a Leiden constellation of wonderfulness. Copperheads, unionists, and hardbacks collide. Plus the latest entry in our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have a discussion with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller about their new Leaden Universe novel, Dragon in Exile. This one mostly takes place on that tough-as-nail world, Sherbleek, and there are a lot of developments as Clan Corval struggles to come back from exile and near destruction. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. Here's the news. Hardcovers, June, oh yeah. We have Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's latest entry in the Leaden universe, Dragon in Exile. We'll be talking to Sharon and Steve about that shortly. Also out in a special signed leather-bound edition is a very special reissue of David Weber's fourth book in the Honor Harrington series, Field of Dishonor. This is the one where Honor deals with her nemesis, the despicable Pavel Young, these are limited in number and are going to disappear very quickly, so if you want this exquisite book, you better jump on it quick, metaphorically speaking. I also want to mention, and I will mention it again on the podcast, that we have out the first volume of a New Year's Best series. This is the Year's Best Military SF and Space Opera, Volume 1. The anthology is edited by David F. Sherrod, whom regular listeners will have heard co-hosting the podcast several times, usually when it involves a short story anthology. Go figure. David has read literally everything that came out in science fiction in short story or novella form in 2014 and chosen the best. Now we are offering a chance for you, the reader of this anthology, to vote on the best story in the anthology. There's a special web page to do so, which is to be found in the book, whether ebook version or trade paperback. So check out your favorite author's stories. One of my personal favorites in the volume is Mike Williamson's Soft Casualty, by the way. But there are plenty of good ones in this great, uh, this great collection. Whichever author wins the proctored online poll will receive $500 and a cool plaque to be given out at DragonCon in Atlanta in a special ceremony. So get the anthology and support your favorite author. Or just book out the coolest story and support that. Dragon in Exile, Field of Dishonor, and the year's best military SF and space opera are now out at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Sharon Lee and Steve Miller to the podcast. Hello, folks. Hi, Hi Danny. Sharon Lee and Steve Miller began co-authoring their tales of the Leaden universe 27 years ago. Is that right? I think I toted, totted it up, right? 1988 is when the first book came out. That was when it was, start, when it was uh, first published, yes. Uh, the series went through a number of publishers until Bain Books saw a wonderful opportunity to reissue the, the first books in the series and ask Sharon and Steve to write more Leaden Universe novels. For the past decade, they've done exactly that with Leaden novels, Fledgling, Saltation, Mouse and Dragon, Ghost Ship, Dragon Ship and Necessity's Child, Trade Secret, and New Leaden Novel, now available at Booksellers Dragon in Exile. Previous Leaden Universe novels have been collected into Bain Omnibus editions, by the way, and there are two volumes of short stories and novellas set in the Leaden Universe, a Leaden Universe Constellation Volumes 1 and 2. There's going to be a third, is there not, in August? August, yes. So look out for Leaden Universe Constellation Volume 3. Sharon and Steve are also the authors of other Bane novels. The most current set is Sharon's solo Archer's Beach contemporary fantasy series. These books include Carousel Tides, Carousel Sun, and Carousel Seas. I'd also like to mention that there is a great Dragon and Exile-related short story on the front page at Bane.com right now. It's called Chimera. That will be available 
in the 2015 Free Short Stories ebook collection after uh, the 15th of June when it'll be replaced on the on the front page. But go ye there and read it. Sharon and Steve, in Dragon and Exile, we find star trading clan Corval. Uh, they've moved lock, stock, and barrel to the planet of Sherbleek. Just give us an entry for the non-initiated. Who are these people, and why are they there? They're, they're either um, heroes of the galaxy and preservers of the homeworld, or arch-villains who, who tried to destroy Liet. And they are the, <clears throat> they are the descendants of one of the brave star captains who went between universes as the universe was collapsing. And uh, Cor those of Corval are the descendants of one of the particular star captains who made that dangerous trip and, uh, and survived. Most recently what they have been um, on the planet of Liad, which is a very um, elitist planet. Liadans all think that they're better than, than you and everybody else, too. Um, and Leiden clans, Leidens are formed into clans, and there are 50 high houses at one Leid. There is Corval. And that's what they used to say until... <laughs> until this particular event, which is either an act of heroism or an act of vile villainy, which has resulted in them being banished from Leid. And so they have... And they have ended up on Shurbleek, uh, and uh, Shurbleek is a world that had been abandoned by its corporate overlords, uh, fallen into extreme disarray, and then has been uh, adopted, in effect, or co-opted by, uh, by a member of Clan Corval. Uh, you'd have to see a lot of other backstory for us to get that all in right, how that happened. Yeah. But that's how they up on Shurbleek. That's uh, that backstory is the subject of um, one novel. I dare. I dare. Sherbleek was not the happiest place when Corval arrived, and they they're it's kind of a gangster planet when they got there. Um, so what what has this conquest entailed? Well, um, Patron is trying to when Patron arrived, the um, city was was chopped up into territories into turfs. Um, and he decided, and the bosses warred with each other, and there was, you know, gunfights on the street and all kinds of bad things. Um, and so Patrick has done the very heinous thing of um, trying to introduce law and order. He's done this by uh, basing them in their own, to start with, in, in their own uh, in their own way. He set himself up as a shop owner, which he knew would invite in, invite the locals to try to take Both. over, and. Uh, as the various local bosses came at him, um, he took them down and took over their territories. Uh, eventually, he, he arrived at a happier solution, one that he had already expected would happen, which is the bosses uh, who usually retired each other through the use of arms. Um, you would hear that boss so-and-so was retired. That meant somebody had shot him in the back of the head or, you know, whatever. But they didn't like facing Patron because he faced people with his, occasionally with a minion or two uh, and generally just, you know, took them out and was very methodical about it. Businessly. Nah. And so he took over the city and thus took over the planet because that city was also the, the spaceport and et cetera. There's a, there's a saying on Shriblik that um, something or another is bad for business. And it turns out that Patron is actually good for business. And he's connected them to the larger trading networks because that's what Corval does. They're star traders. Right. All right, so we have Sherbleek. Near the beginning, Valkanios Felium, who is, uh, who's the head of Clan Corval, the Dalm, what is the dilemma that he's also a former agent of change um, himself, and he's got these, well, just tell us about what's going on here. Once you have prisoners, you have to um, either hold them or let them go. And he can't do... These particular prisoners have been um, brainwashed? Uh, they, they've been um, indoctrinated to the point that they, they are one, very nearly one, with the people who have indoctrinated him. 
them. And Valcon had broke training, and uh, there are one or two other people who have managed over time to break training. But he's facing a... He feels a deep sympathy with these people because, after all, he was an agent of change. He knows what, what happened to them, what they're going through, and what they're living. Um, it's, it's basically they are the killing... Um, they're activated killing machines for the Department of Interior that that um, tried to take over Liad. And they're indoctrinated to believe that if they are killed in the service of the of the department, that's that's a good thing. That, that their lives are spent well. Well, the Department of Interior um, is the ultimate bad guy. Clan Corville has been trying to rescue. Um, themselves and the other clans from from their their horrible grasp even if the other clans don't realize this right this is a a long this is a big arc of the story over several novels in an agent of change the very first novel so tell us about valcon he hasn't always been delm of corville um give us some background on this relationship also with miri his life mate great place to dive into the Iliadian universe if you're looking for a spot. meanings. So how did Valcon come to be the Delm? Well, the ring was being held in trust for him by his um, cousin, Nova Yoskalan, um, until he should become old enough. Um, the age of majority only out of 35 standard years. And um, when he was separated from the clan because of all of these events um, that are detailed in Agent of Change and and he finally meets up with his clan, having broken training and realizing the scope of the enemy and realizing that his kin, who are all gentle people, really, have no idea what to do. And he, he, he says to her, the ring passes, I am now down. He says, I'm the only one who knows what this is. Mary and I are the only ones who know what we're up against. Um, so they, they, they permit this. What's happened in the meantime is that Plan B had become in effect. Uh, plan B, because the department had been had been after people, and Plan B is something that had long been part of their the culture of the clan, which is in case some things get really out of hand, we'll go to Plan B. In which case, that means we scatter, we scatter, we we regroup, we whatever. The children and the old people go to a safe hold. In this particular um, instance of Plan B, um, the children and the old people went to Runic's Rock. And at the same, <clears throat> pardon me, at the same time, agents of the Department of Interior had come by to Patron Yosvelium, who'd been seen at, up to that point as a ne'er-do-well, a playboy, a gambler, a playboy. Uh, and offered him a what they were claiming was the ring, which in fact was not the ring, and he could see it immediately because it was a, an artif an art there were artifacts in it that made it obvious. And that's why he took over, surely. But we don't want to give the whole story, the whole backstory away. What we have is is the, the main leaders of this clan, this starfaring clan um, on the planet Shurbleek, trying to, um, trying to make a comeback of sorts. Um, 
also, uh, also there is Rislan Pinchala. We've met pre- in a previous book, and he's seeking a new life now that he's been delivered from uh, the Department of Interior's uh, evil programming. Uh, can you tell us about the company? They, what are they doing on Sherbleek, and how is Riss associated with them? Company are a civilization of star travelers which go to various planets, set down a company, a, a group of themselves, and they then collect technology and language and whatever seems interesting, and then the ship comes back and they go back and add their knowledge into the ship's knowledge base. Um, they've been doing this for quite a, quite a number of years, given some of the technology they have, including um, the ability to dream someone else's experience. That is extremely cool, and it plays a large part in the, in the plot of um, Dragon in Exile. Can you explain that a little bit? It, it, well, it's difficult to explain what we're... Um, the Forerunners had something, in Andre Norton, something where you would put on a, a crown or would transmit someone else's um, thoughts to yourself? In effect, it's a, it's a, a, uh, an, a very limited or a very directed form of what used to be called sleep learning. Mm-hmm. Which also and, exists in the leading universe. And that also does exist in, in, this, <clears throat> in the universe. Uh, in this case, the head of the company, uh, actually there are several heads of the company the way it is the way it is provided, because it's somewhat tribal. And uh, but the, uh, the head of the company can direct dreams in certain directions. It's a combination of, if you will, uh, mysticism and technology. It's as if in order to achieve a certain amount, in, in order to become somebody who could sleep learn, you had to go through an entire course of uh, Tai Chi first. And then once you achieve a certain level of, of uh, patience and understanding and mindfulness, and, uh, then you would be able to move on and use this course. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a combination there. But the reason in, for that, because we, we haven't, we've got personal interests in, in some of these things. Oh, yeah? Have you, you, I mean, as authors, you've tried some of this? As authors, we've tried... Tai Chi and tai yoga. Tai Chi and yoga, <laughs> and yes. Crazy Eastern things, I see. Hands <laughs> free dreaming is a very um, necessary creative tool. Absolutely, and the the thing about the, the comp- company dreams is also that um, they are able to offer you moral choices, and you actually develop. It, it's a kind of psychotherapy, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's um, you can learn what you can learn from the mistakes of others directly. Um, and you can, you will absorb, I think, the the, Beatles, um, the company's um, ethical system, which is a little strange, but at core, it's honorable. Sounds like something similar to reading uh, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller books, actually. Um, and you, other <clears throat> people who've already familiar with the Bain front page have come across, or should have come across, all your theories. Which was a, a story which that introduced, also... Which introduced the, the Beatles to the wider universe. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's where I've met them. <laughs> I've read so many of... Uh, I have the Leanne universe in my head. I'm, I imagine a lot of readers are like this, but, but you can't quite put your finger on where you know something from, which is great. As long as you know it when, when it comes up in the story. Yeah. So... The thing I like about this book so, so much is that it's this—it's a tapestry of—it's a wonderful tapestry of various characters. I mean, most of these novels are. This one in particular gives us a really nicely drawn relationship between uh, two older women, which is which who are Kaleem Waitley and Kareen Yosfilium. Um, I thought I really like that friendship. Can you? What what makes these two work together so well? They're very different people. Although their names sound a little similar. Um, they're both scholars. They're both students. Um, Karine is a little bit older than Camille. Yeah. And part, of, <clears throat> part of it is that Karine has, in effect, been released 
by the move to Shorebleak because Kareen had been the keeper of the code of proper conduct in the effect. Liaden. The Liaden code of proper conduct. She had been the ultimate authority. She she knew the code backward and for, forward better than anybody else. Some, some kind of a sociologist. That means she knows why people do things according to, and uh, Kamel has has come into this because of another relationship which we haven't described, which isn't touched on quite yet, and she's come into this assuming that she's going to eventually go back to the world of the university that she had she had come from, and then Kareen officer offers her a challenge to help decide what is it that Shorebleak should have been and what should it be now. This is, as a society, uh, given the fact that they know Corval trying to make it Leighton is not going to work. Corval becoming Shorebleakian is too dangerous to contemplate. Yes. And so what they're trying to do is, is to see how these societies can reasonably meld without destroying, uh, without destroying either the clan necessarily or Shorebleak. It's cool the way that she re realizes that that Corval has to change as well. And kind of like the Vikings when they invaded England, they they had to adapt as much as the as much as their those they conquered. If everybody wants to get out of this alive, we're going to have to work with each other. And they're identifying the things that are absolutely necessary to liaisons, like contracts. Mm -hmm. There's <laughs> there's a wonderful scene in the book where we find out just how important contracts are. Yes. It's easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission. And contracts are made to be broken. And to a liaison, once we have hammered <laughs> out the contract and everything is set down and the Kiandra has, has um, signed off on it, it's, it's more than law. And it's more than set in stone. You and the, your honor and the honor of your clan stands behind it. And the honor of the person who made the contract with you and the honor of the Keander who signed <coughs> off on the thing. I mean, it's a very, very complex social structure. So, no, contracts are not meant to be broken. <laughs> and if you say that, you might. You might. Killed, yes. Yes. So um, tell us about the society. There's trouble in the port. Um, somebody is trying to stir up trouble with the new, with the new boss, Conrad, uh, Pat Wren. Uh, and there's still organized crime going on. Um, we have Pat Wren's uh, son, Quinn, working in town. Uh, and we have... Uh, what is he doing exactly? Is he working in a rug shop or is... gets on a rug, you want to make sure the rug gets clean before you call the cops. Before you call your dad, yeah, that's pretty, you know, 
priority is everything. Rug clean first priorities. <laughs> um, tell us about also about um, Hazenthal. She she's a Clan Corville member. She's partnered partnered with Tolly Jones. Um, these two face problems that are kind of emblematic of the new order that's that's taking shape on Sturbleek. They're sort of on the ground dealing with it. Mm-hmm. They're, they're port cops. What's what's complex is that Balcon and Corval have continuously had the habit of not of not giving useful things back. Uh, that's one of the reasons they've they collect ships. They right? collect yes, they do collect ships, and when and they collect relationships, which is part of the whole Melanti of the Leighton uh, society. But if they've come across a good pilot and he needs a job, they'll find something for him to do. In the same way that Sean and Priscilla, when when they first met, she needed employment. He said, um, here, you can be our pet librarian. And We have a pet library, but we don't have a pet librarian. Why don't you be the pet librarian? So they, they, they tend to be acquisitive in, in terms of skills and Dragons. capabilities. Dragons. Yeah. And so Haventhal is a... Acquisition. She, she's in, in effect an acquisition. She was uh, one of the rare members of the Extrang who was able to switch, switch uh, allegiances. Um, in Plan B, there's an ex- it's a, the story of an Extrang invasion of a Leaden world, and um, against all odds, the Leadens fail. Extrang don't likely isn't very much, and they don't allow themselves to be captured. However, they can swear to another captain, and Mary happens to be a mercenary captain. So they have given their allegiance to Captain Mary Robertson, and Captain Mary Robertson, as half of the Dome of Corval, has attached them to Corval, and that's why Hausenthal's name is Hausenthal Versalium, which means of, of Corval. Yes, she is, she is of the... She is Rather than Yosphelium, which is of the of, of the, the line. line, she's Norphelium, and uh, so she is an explorer. Was first an explorer, and she has survived. Uh, she has survived a battle, and because lost her partner, lost the original partner, and because of Dov Yosphelium, who is again not previously much mentioned in this discussion, uh, was. Who sees a, a valuable tool here, and which is going to die unless he does something, and so he does something. And he does something, and which, which ends up with their, with uh, Hasenthal being in in the clan, and uh, as, as, as a part of the troop, the clan's troop, as support. And uh, Tully Jones is another one of the people who has come to Sherbrooke, land of opportunity. Because once Corval is there, people know it's going to change. The assumption is it will change for the better. Uh, Corval is not the only one, is not the only uh, immig- immigrating force there because the, many of the scouts who have uh, long been supportive of Corval and Corval's type of things, they've split with their families at home who are still on Liad, who were... Uh, Disbelieving of the actual uh, incident in which Corval, uh, in which Corval saved the planet, and so there's a, there's a lot of complexity, a lot of threads. Yeah, that not only not only Sherbrooke is changing, but Leah is changing because they're losing scouts, they're losing healers, they're losing some of their more talented people in the in the lower clans who didn't have a chance to excel on Leah, but <coughs> the opportunity on Sherbrooke. Speaking of, of some of these these others, um, there, I mean, there's so much to cover in this. It's really a tapestry of a novel in the universe. Um, but the Dramlas, um, they're a pretty fascinating bunch. They are a really great re- reworking of that old star-dwelling psychics trope that you see from uh, Foundation to Dune to Andre Norton and, and more. And we meet two of them in Dragon and Exile, uh, Miri, uh, Valcon's m- former mercenary uh, life mate, likes them, but she thinks they're very dangerous, and she's right, right? Um, can you tell us about Anthora and Renzel? 
Renzel. things they can do i mean they can read minds they can uh and and thora can do some telekinetic stuff and they can so, and sometimes how, see the future right oh, Renzel, well, no not exactly what renzel can do is he can look out over for the universe all of the lines that hook everything together he can also manipulate them which makes him really scary i yeah. think mary said that he could turn off the universe like blowing up that is scary. <laughs> well, and this is that uh, there are very few people. There are very few people around who can uh, who can match either of those. But what what is true is that uh, Anthora, uh, by dint of whatever power is in that Valcon has, Valcon can tell her no. Valcon has the capability of telling Anthora, no, you can't do that, no, don't do that. And it, it comes to him in part because he was Delman, he, he, he was the Delm genetic, and she simply, uh, yeah. so there is, there is some control there. And then when Valcon life-mated Miri, uh, that Miri, got the Miri also became, had access there. So you, you have, uh, I don't want to call it a balance because you've got some of the some of the top people in one of the what had been one of the strongest clans, and understand that when it came time, this is one that this is dealt with in other books. When it came time, and the Council of Clans said, you know, we don't trust you here, we don't want you here, we release you. Well, again, the Liagan clan Corval had been under contract way back through multiple. Generation since the first ship came from the old galaxy. Because the old the universe. they had taken a contract, that clan had taken the contract to deliver the passengers to them. a world and protect them, and that's that had been a continuous thread. So when they broke that thread, when the Council of Clans broke the thread, that's when Clan Corval could have said, "Okay, well, we're just going to fight it and we're going to stay." And instead, they made the decision, you know, we're really tired of all you people. <laughs> we'll just get out of here. And, again, part of that, that acquiescence came because the Dramlis and in that line were, were also being stunted as, as Corval as a line was being stunted on Liad. And, that, and Liad was becoming more and more a stultifying place. I don't know that stunted. I mean, Kareem makes the point that Yosfellian started as pirates. And if they're left to their own on Shore Bleak, that's where they're going to go again. And maybe that's not a good idea. And that's why she, she and Camille... Uh, and Camille had, had had a relationship with the... But Camille is Theo's... From Fletcher, is Theo's mom. And she had had a relationship with Valcon's father. And Val, as Valcon's father, had been undercover uh, either hiding and or getting, uh, getting a balance or what had happened to his wife at the hands of the uh, Department of the Interior. And so that relationship is, that's another reason the relationship is, is between Camille and Corrine is so interesting because Camille is somebody who had been close to Corrine's brother. And she admits, was not close to. And she admits she wasn't close to, 
but they still shared through that um, that shared relationship. They already had a share of, of certain attitudes and concepts. And Camille, who comes at this as not a Liaden but a Terran, from Terran background, from a world where women are the leading citizens and men are lucky, you know, men are lucky and uh, to have somebody who, who will hold them, and if the woman says, no, goodbye, you've got to leave. So there's all kinds of balance uh, and and so, social things between them, too, to and be explored. The expectations. So and that's Camille, part of what Camille also comes from what's called a safe world, where they don't let aberrant people, you know, shoot people in the street or, or even say an unkind word. And Sherblick is very much not a safe world. Yeah, kind, of, kind of the opposite, and or at least it started that. There's some great characters, uh, but we don't stay on Sure Bleak the whole time. There's some great interludes, and there's some great characters from the previous novel and short stories that we check in with. There is that great Dav sort of subplot that's going on. You about the, <clears throat> the uncle. The uncle is one of the... Is one of the people who came from the old universe, and in fact, uh, there are several lines of, of uh, communicate of I shouldn't say communication of uh, a connection to the old universe. Of all of those lines, uh, Jella and Contra became the line that became Clan Corval, <clears throat> and the uncle was a revolutionary. <clears throat> Pardon me. The uncle was a revolutionary. In fact, he had interacted with Contra Yosfelium and Jella. Uh, he is also the only creature that might be said to have come from the old universe and still exist in the new universe. But he does this uh, through a variation on the... Uh, and the old universe cloning was the usual thing. That's how you got your labor force. Um, so the uncle has available to me, because he brought his house with him, I mean, stuff in the world. has, has um, technology available to him that is either outlawed in the new universe or that no one has ever actually heard of. And so <clears throat> he is more or less a continuous, um, he's had a more or less continuous existence from the old universe to the new. And as a result, he has a, a uh, let's call it a, uh, wider viewpoint. <laughs> a longer viewpoint. <laughs> and so he was involved in, uh, let's see, Necessity's Child? Was he involved in Necessity's no, Child? He was involved in... It was an Uncle Free book. Okay. Um, <laughs> he was in Trade Secret. He was in Trade... He, he was, was in, in Trade he's Secret. He's in Balance of Trade. Um, one of his... Um, one of Jeffrey's relatives is one of the uncle's relatives. And he also is, was... Present when Dov got himself into trouble. Right. In Dragonship. In Dragonship. He was the, he was there. And he ended up there not because he wanted to be there, but because he has a certain amount of... Um, of he buried honor. <laughs> uh, he, he does have honor, and he also has an understanding uh, that the family that is Korval has been central to many of the good things that have happened in the new universe after the transition, and he does not want to see that go away entirely. One of the things that the uncle um, finds most offensive about Corval is Corval's relationship with Luck. Um, Luck follows Corval not always well, but Corval bends circumstance and and um, probability just by existing. This was one of Theo's problems in quotation, is yeah. that just, things just happen. And because of that, in, in the one place Theo shows up, they, they kind of say, oh, no, we've got to deal with her, but we've got to send her away. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're, they're half right because the trumped-up charge they used to send her away from school um, is that she's a nexus of violence, which is to say things happen. And so that's that's true. But the, un the uncle is, is uh, and the uncle is, I'm trying to remember which book we're at. <laughs> um, the uncle was in was part of the process that saw Theo's ship Bishimo built in the first place. Right, that was one of the uncle's projects. And his training is part of the reason that Bishimo survived after every all the humans that were in, uh, around him initially 
um, were, were killed off, but Bishimo managed to escape and then survive for a couple a couple hundred years until he found his, his quote unquote captain. His captain. So uh, the un the uncle is a um, an ongoing force. Uh, we he's an ongoing force for for change for himself and for for change uh, and an odd stability that that's not that's not obvious. Um, so yeah, that the uncle has been a fun a fun character, and so has uh, so has Dulcie. Um, and th there's a little bit of comic relief here as well. There's Jeeves, the robot AI. Um, he and Theo Waitley, who's uh, Camille's daughter, right, have solved the problem, have solved one problem in a previous book, but they've created kind of a monster. Tell us about this and who is Admiral Bunter. I have a feeling we're going to see a lot more of him at some point. reacted. I think Jeeves um, remarks that young things react before they think. Um, and so she made a solution um, to, to a threat to a space station. And what, what she had available to her was a, uh, <clears throat> what she had, what she was expecting was uh, multiple armed ships possibly coming in to try to take over not only her own ship, but also the entire space station and, and the area. And she had a ship that had some weaponry, but was not, in fact, a warship. Didn't have that. So, um, what what they ended up doing um, is putting together a, a cobbling. Co cobbling together a um, uh, sort of an armada that had a sort of a a, a sort of a one commander, a one mind that's scattered through thirteen really iffy computers, only seven ships. One of them's the the computer in the cafeteria in the one ship that, that tells you what's available. That's the but that was the best computer in the ship that was still left in the, in a ship that was in a junkyard, and so that computer being available, they threw it into the mix. So yes, and he's uh, not a very stable computer. It's kind of like a all powerful baby, in a way. Through him and through the problem he creates, we get to, to see some more of Jeeves as a wonderful character um, who's, who's also in a short story uh, that's been on Bain.com as well. Intelligent Design. Intelligent Design, which is found, I think, in the 2013 free short stories anthology, and also I'm sure it's in Leiden uh, Universe Constellation 3. So Corval, what's... Some think they've committed war crimes, some think they did what they had to do. Um, is Corval ever going to return to Liad? I, they sold everything. Yeah. As they were committed. So they've really pulled up stakes. Corval's idea was to um, get out and to do it in such a way that they would make more profit than the planet would make. Uh, they did have to sell some stuff at a loss. They did have to do some uh, finagling financially through the uh, Accountants Guild and the Kandra. Uh, <clears throat> but their whole thing was that Liad itself had become, Stultified had become too case-ridden, case in effect, where, uh, and it didn't seem like it was going to be getting any better. So they were happy enough to, uh, to remove themselves uh, yes, they have to reinvent themselves, but after all, they're they're no longer in charge of what they've been in charge for, so they were going to have to change anyway. And reinventing themselves, um, many of of the adult generation of Clan Corval are scouts and traders, so they're used to dealing with people who aren't Leadens and accepting other worldviews. So this isn't a strange thing for them. Um, sure, Blake may be... Um, <laughs> and, uh, a little chaotic for them, but they, they still hold out the, the belief that they can, out of senselessness, they can make something that makes sense for everybody. And so Corval is, Corval, 
The only way that Corval could have stayed on Liad was to, in fact, subvert it as they were being uh, accused of doing. And that wasn't a choice that they were willing to take. They didn't want to be dictators. They did not want to do, be in that in that regard. And, and the, so, council, the Council of Clans, um, some of the people in the Council of Clans, when they were up for trial, had called for their execution to execute the domes and then spread the remaining clan members among among clans who hated them, basically. Um, um, which which would have been an interesting which would have been an interesting scene, but we we didn't want to write those scenes. No, I don't think I don't think been, that would have worked out well for them. Because what what had happened way back in um, in one of the backstories. The reason that they got thrown off was that they happened to have they had happened to have fired on the home world with weapons that were capable of inflicting extreme damage. <clears throat> but they had a reason for doing that. Very good one. Figure that a clan that could do that is not going to have its delms walk up to the firing to to the firing squad. Um, so here we are. Here we are. <laughs> um, no. Nor would nor would their allies have gone along and with that. And nor did honor demand. I mean, they believe and they're right that they did nothing wrong. That they did that <clears throat> necessity existed and they properly answered necessity. And mm. so um, that that in that entire line of of um, thought and, and arrangement simply couldn't couldn't have happened. And so they needed to go someplace else, one, whether For the wherever it was. Of all. <laughs> yeah, wherever it was, and it just happened to be that Shurbleek uh, had, had sort of prepared Shurbleek. Had sort of softened it up. Yeah. So the next Leanne Universe novel, are we going to stay with Clan Corval here on Shurbleek? Um, are you working on it? Have you got a title? I happen to know you. Um, you have. The next, <laughs> the next one goes goes elsewhere. Um, it involves um, Admiral Bunter. Aha. Um, it involves the dutiful passage, setting up um, new trade routes, um, and it's called Alliance of Equals, and it will be on your desk on Monday morning. Excellent. And it, so I'm, am I right in assuming Theo is is back? Not in this one. Not in this one. Um, gathering Edge, is that what you're... Yeah. yeah Theo's, Theo's in the Gathering Edge, which is the one we start after we come back from our book tour. Yeah, the, the Gathering <laughs> Edge is the working title, and it may well be the... It may well be the final title in the Gathering Edge. Um, by by then, we have in fact created a, a universe that that spreads among so many people that we can't simply follow one and say this is how it all gets done. So the, the books themselves need to be uh, a little more like a tapestry than say Agent of Change was. Well, even in Agent of Change, we didn't, there wasn't one hero. No, there wasn't There's, a single. There is not. Valkan is not the hero. And, and he's a hero. Um, and that's that's the way you know that's kind of the way we 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 see it is that and you you could uh, say that of our work in general is that generally our work is about uh, the process of partnership. Uh, you can see it in Oh Eutherius. You can see it in uh, Moon on the Hill. You can see it on and yeah, you you can see there's the, the process of partnership and many, of, many um, hands make the work place. <clears throat> and, and of uh, compromise, and all of these things come into because it's the process that we all go through in life anyway. I think so. That that's kind of the some of the subtext. But the Gathering Edge will be getting back to to more of the spacefaring people. The book is Dragon in Exile, the latest entry in the long-running, nationally best-selling Leaden Universe series by uh, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. It's now available at booksellers everywhere. Sharon and Steve, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for the time. And now here is another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents. In each generation, more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy. 
the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at it. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives, the Grim Noir, who are dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse, an apocalypse that seems to be accelerating toward a terrible finale. Here is Bronson Pinchot with this portion of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. UBF Tempest There had been an expanding wall of a world-consuming explosion and Jake Sullivan had blinked. When his eyes opened, the view out the front of the airship was entirely different. The sky was a gentle pre-dawn gray instead of an evil cerulean blue. The ground far below was green, yellow, and brown, neatly blocked off into rectangular fields. In the distance, the sun was beginning to peek over purple mountains. It was the most beautiful sight he'd ever seen as they hung there, suspended. And then the entire airship was spinning wildly out of control. Wind slashed through the cabin. Someone was screaming, or maybe it was the aluminum airframe coming apart. He threw out one hand and caught a jagged edge of wall. A limp body tumbled past him, but he lashed out and caught an arm. It was Faye. She hung. Either unconscious or dead, he couldn't tell, and he held onto her wrist with all his strength as her legs dangled out the front of the craft. He dragged her back inside. They were rotating, faster and faster as they corkscrewed toward the ground. Hull one compromised, Lance bellowed. Every warning light in the cabin that hadn't been broken was flashing red. An alarm sounded. Hull two, bleeding helium fast. Francis struggled over to the radio. He picked up the end of the horn and cranked the charge wheel. Mayday! Mayday! This is airship UBF Tempest! We're going down! We're... He stopped. Where the hell are we? It didn't matter anyway. Francis just didn't realize that Sullivan had already smashed the radio. Dirigibles were not meant to go down this fast. They'd dug a pit at this speed. Where were they? They sure as hell weren't in the middle of the Pacific, which meant... He looked down at the skinny little traveler in his arms. Well, I'll be... Was that even possible? Barnes Dalton shoved his way onto the deck, bouncing hard against a bulkhead. Sullivan was glad to see that at least some of the Bulldog Marauder's crew had been brought on board, not that it mattered much right now. The pilot managed to grab onto the back of the helmsman's chair and shouted in Lance's ear, Let me drive! Ain't nothing you can do. Scoot over, Pops! Barnes shouted. Give him the stick, Lance, Sullivan stated. He knows what he's doing. Lance got out of the way, swaying with the blimp. He'd better, or we're all dead, Sullivan smiled. Nah, I fall off blimps all the time. It ain't so bad. Barnes climbed into the chair and grabbed the controls. Sullivan could feel the magic thrumming through the ship. He didn't understand what kind of active Barnes was, but he was channeling a whole lot of power. Nice ride you got here, the pirate shouted. Everybody grab hold of something. I'm taking her in. El Nido, California the Tempest not only landed, it landed right side up, which wasn't bad, all things considered. Since there was only a single landing skid left, one bag was completely destroyed and the other leaking and hissing, the airship looked drastically lopsided. It didn't help that Barnes had landed them in a field filled with Holstein cows. Sullivan wondered idly if there had been any of the poor animals under the blimp when they'd hit. If so, that would be one unhappy cow. There was a mess of wounded. Jane was running around tending to them, even though she'd burned through most of her magic, saving him from Maddie a few times. She could still see right inside folks to tell exactly what was wrong with them. Dan was like her shadow. It would be a while before the mouth let her out of his sight. He spit blood. Maybe if it wasn't too much trouble and she'd taken care of everybody else first. He'd ask Jane to fix his teeth. They smarted something fierce. Young Francis was talking to the UBF men. Apparently, they were his employees now. 
Sullivan couldn't figure that one out, but his head hurt too bad to give it much thought. The kid was nervous, worried about the injured, and was taking the time to personally talk to every one of the company men. He'd make a good leader someday. Some of the Bulldog Marauders crew had made it. Lady Origami had apparently never seen a cow before and was trying to coax one close enough so she could touch its nose. He'd heard Parker had been lost, stabbed in the back by a ninja. Bob Southunder's baldness was hidden under a bandage, but he was still up, tending to his men. The old pirate saw Sullivan watching him and came over. Mr. Sullivan, he said formally. Barnes tailed along behind him. He nodded. Captain Southunder, Barnes. Southunder smiled when he looked down. This was another one who was surprised to be alive. Guess I don't have to hide and protect the Geotel anymore. So was your plan. Why, what I do best. I do believe I'm going to go speak to that young man who apparently owns UBF and try to convince him that he owes me a new dirigible. I was just going to ask you if you wanted a job. As you can see, I've had a few positions open up. Sullivan gave him a broken-toothed smile. I'll have to think on that one, Captain, but thank you. Southunder patted him on the shoulder. I should have listened to you sooner, Mr. Sullivan. Wherever the winds carry you, take care of yourself. He walked away and within seconds was trying to coerce a blimp out of Francis, preferably something big, fast, and armored. Barnes looked him over. You sure you don't want to go, Sullivan? It's a lot of fun. Maybe one of these days. I've got some things I need to figure out first. By the way, what the hell are you? Barnes shrugged. I don't know if it's got a name. I didn't know I wasn't active until one time I crashed during a show and hit my head really bad. It still gives me wicked headaches. You got some pocket change? Sullivan found seven pennies, a nickel and two dimes, which was everything he had to his name, and passed them over. Barnes took them all in his hand. Heads or tails? heads. Barnes threw them all up, then swept his other hand across quickly, snagging every one out of the air. He slapped them down on his palm, and then held it out for Sullivan to see. All but one of them was heads. Just lucky, I guess. I have a way of making things work out. Sullivan pointed at the one penny showing tails. What about that guy? The young man grinned. Southunder was calling for him. I guess you can't win them all. It wouldn't be an adventure if you could. See you around, Sullivan. There was still a lot to learn about magic. After the pilot had left, Sullivan closed his eyes and went back to resting under the shade of the tempest's broken wing. Jane had mended him, but he could still feel the wounds. Most men would still be incoherent with pain, but he was used to it. Him and pain were old pals. He opened his eyes to see Lance Talon and Heinrich Koenig standing over him. Lance scratched his beard. Just thought you'd want to know Faye's still out. Sullivan sat up, groaning. Jane know what's wrong with her? Nothing, far as she can tell. Nothing physical, at least. I've heard of actives putting themselves in a coma using too much power. Lance was concerned. He'd taken a real liking to that girl. I'll let you know. I'd appreciate that. She saved my life. Saved us all, Lance said. Hell, from what I heard, she maybe did in the chairman. In that case, that crazy Oki probably saved the whole world. Kill the chairman, he snorted. I never figured she'd keep that promise. Lance limped up the ramp, laughing as he went. Heinrich was still there, not speaking. His face was nearly as gray as his ripped-up coat. Yeah, spit it out, Fritz. The fade smiled as he sat down on the remains of the landing gear. I am supposed to give you something. When we boarded the Tokugawa, Delilah knew she was not coming back. Heinrich held out a grimoire ring. Sullivan didn't take it. That her father's? No, she kept that one. Said she was intending to earn it. This is Pershing's. I picked it up after you threw it down. When I'd told her what happened, 
she made me promise to make you take it back. He held it out. Sullivan took it slowly. She was very adamant. Delilah and her promises, he said softly as he curled his fingers around the little piece of black and gold. And Sullivan always kept his promises. He would not let her down this time. That was the end of it. Sorry, got something in my eye. Heinrich rose. She was a remarkable woman. I've known thousands who shared her final curse, and only the very best of them were strong enough to think of anyone other than themselves. I offered to end her suffering, but she wanted her death to have meaning. I must go check on Faye. Meaning. He'd survived Rockville. He could survive anything. Sullivan shoved the ring back on his pinky. Faye was in the place with the big glowing thing in the sky, which was apparently what the power looked like in real life, two big shapes stuck together, all made of bunches of little complicated shapes with dangling arms connecting to every active in the world. It still reminded her of that drawing of a jellyfish that she'd seen in a book. Instead of Mr. Sullivan's wasteland from the big war, she was sitting on a haystack, watching the cows wander in on their own from the corral because they knew it was milking time. Crows were landing on the barn roof, and the air smelled like it had just rained, and above it all was the power. Her place was a lot nicer than Mr. Sullivan's. The last time she'd been here, in the dream world, not on the Vieira farm, she'd thought that this was hell, and she'd been condemned there for breaking the commandment about not killing folks. Well, since then she'd killed so many people that she'd lost track, but they'd all been bad, and she'd done it all with her God-given ability, so she figured her and God were square. Her body was back in the real world, but she'd fried her brain map like an egg. She did not know if she would ever wake up. Might as well get comfy. She watched the power for a while as it consumed the magic of the actives who died. The power had planted seeds, the actives had grown the crop, and now it was time to harvest. The power wasn't scary, it was just a big critter. It wasn't good or bad, it just wanted to live, same as anything else, and it did it through people like her. It was silly to be scared of the power. In fact, it was scared itself. She could see that now. Something bad and hungry was hunting it, and the power was afraid. You see it too, traveler? The chairman was sitting on another bale of hay, dressed in a robe just like when she'd seen him last, only he had his hands back. No fair, I thought she was dead. I am. The chairman turned his head, and she could see right through him. She should have been scared of ghosts, but she wasn't. Nothing could hurt her here, in the place where the dead came to dream. He bowed his head slightly. Congratulations. You shouldn't have killed my grandpa. Serves you right. Revenge is as good a motive as any, nobler by far than most, the haunt said. He went back to the power. I tried to prepare the world to create a society that would be ready. I failed. Now what will you do without me? Faye thought about it. She knew he was talking about the other thing, the hungry thing. When it shows up, it'll get dealt with. You will need to be strong, stronger than you are now. Perhaps in the future you will look back and regret your decisions, but I doubt that. May I leave you my final poem? Sure. A second sun at night, from the ocean consuming life as oars to water, leaving no trace behind. Pretty, Faye said. Farewell, traveler. The chairman's form dissipated on the wind. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer 
Ruth Judkowitz, and a great heaping helping of balancing Melanti with 27 sizzling candles ablazing on a big cake shaped like a sentient tree, as is required by long-standing Clan Corval protocol when celebrating publishing anniversaries and great new series entries, to Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, co-authors of Dragon in Exile. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>